When you fall in love, it is a temporary madness. It erupts like an earthquake, and then it subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots are to become so entwined together that it is inconceivable that you should ever part. So wrote Louis de Bernier in Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Hello, I'm Jacob Jarvis, and welcome to this romantic edition of the Bunker Daily. Love is universal, but while we've all felt it, do we know what it really is? And why, even if we're left broken-hearted, do we still pursue it? Why can't we help falling in love? Joining me to discuss this all-encompassing phenomenon is Dr Anna Machin, an evolutionary anthropologist and the author of Why We Love, the new science behind our closest relationships. Anna, welcome to The Bunker. Hello, nice to be here. People often think of love as, as an emotion, but is it more is it more fundamental than that? It certainly is. In fact, in recent years, we've really moved away from the idea of love as an emotion. Uh, it's a little bit too complicated to be an emotion. Emotions allow us to respond very quickly to changes in our environment. And love is more of a, a fundamental need for survival than, than simply an emotion is. So with love, we're really now putting it down at the very basic human needs along ta- alongside sort of water and food, you know, thirst mm. and hunger. And it because of that, it's a really complex phenomenon that has inputs from the biological dimension, but also inputs from the sociological dimension. What happens to our brain when we do fall in love? You talk about the universal love chemical in your book. What is that? Mm. Well, there's four universal love chemicals. So, uh, And these chemicals underpin all types of love. So not just romantic love, but wherever mm. you find, find love in your life. And there's four of them because they, they differ in what they do and also how much of them is released at different stages of a relationship. So they're oxytocin, dopamine, beta endorphin and serotonin. Oxytocin and dopamine are really important at the start of a relationship. They have this wonderful partnership where one of them, oxytocin, is a really good reducer of your inhibitions to actually starting a relationship with somebody else. So oxytocin quietens the fear center of your brain, the amygdala. So it makes you much more confident about going to talk to the new person. And dopamine is your hormone of vigor. It's your hormone of motivation. Mm. So dopamine makes sure that you do, in fact, go and talk to the person because oxytocin is fabulous. But if it was just on its own, you'd probably feel so relaxed that you might not actually make the effort. So dopamine's there, just give you a little bit of a kick and say, right, off you go and (laughs) and go and talk to them. So they're really key and they're really key at the start. And even though we describe oxytocin as 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 the love hormone, actually... It's not. It is important at the start, but it actually diminishes in, in its importance the longer the relationship lasts. And, and what takes over at that point is beta endorphin. And beta endorphin is required because it's addictive. So it's really capable of underpinning our long term relationships. We don't build tolerance to it. And it's also important because it can underpin all sorts of human love. The problem with oxytocin is it's mainly released in reproductive relationships. So romantic um, and also during childbirth so in child parent relationships but it's not really released to any great extent in your friendship so we need something else and that's what beta endorphin does. Do these chemicals sort of release in a chronological order is it sort of linear or does it all happen at once and the amount of those that happens kind of shapes what kind of love is the outcome there? Yeah, so definitely at the very start, dopamine and oxytocin are released at exactly the same time. They're this this amazing partnership. Beta endorphin isn't there at the very start of a relationship. Mm. That kind of comes in once the relationship is starting to become more 
deeply grounded, more intense, and when love is really on the horizon. So beta endorphin comes a little bit later. But yes, when you're in a long-term relationship and you see the person that you that you love, then they all just get released at one time. How much is released is dependent on two things. Yes, on the nature of the relationship. So mm. on the intensity of the relationship, for example. But also they're, they're individually variable. So we all vary in terms of how much we actually release. And that's driven in part by our genetics. Our genetics has some control over how much we release. And also um, from our development, our environment as we grew, that also affects how much you get. You describe love as biological bribery in your book. <laughs> is there a key thing that it's a bribe for there or is it is that a mix of things as well? At the absolute fundamental level, it's a bribe to make sure we cooperate with each other. Humans are, I would say, the most cooperative species on the planet. We cooperate in lots of different contexts. We cooperate with lots of different sorts of people. And we also cooperate along a really, really long period of time. Um, and so at the basis of, of all relationships is cooperation, that reciprocity of, of sort of help giving. And that's also the basis of love. And we need to cooperate to survive. The trouble with cooperation is it's really hard. There's lots of negative sides to cooperation. One of them is it's really stressful. So dealing with other people can be really, really stressful, as we all know. We have to live within a hierarchy because we cooperate with each other, which can affect your access to resources. We have to coordinate our day with each other. And also we have to confront the possibility that some of the people we cooperate with aren't actually very nice and they might be there to cheat or lie. So we, we have to take that stress as well. And because it's so stressful, we need a little bit of help from evolution to make sure we do it. And that's what the set of neurochemicals is. So at the most basic level, at the evolutionary explanation level, love is biological bribery. It's just a set of chemicals that motivates you and then rewards you for doing this survival critical behavior. Obviously, love is much, much more than that. But if we look at it from the evolutionary standpoint, that's all it is. You talk about love in the context of cooperation. And when I was researching this, I came across a quote by a philosopher, Victor Hugo, that said, the greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved loved for ourselves, or rather loved in spite of ourselves? Do we largely love because we want love in return? I suppose unconsciously in one sense, yes. I mean, because cooperation is reciprocal. So you help somebody out. And at the very unconscious level, you're expecting something back. You know, we all know friendships or relationships where we're doing all the giving. And ultimately, uh, we kind of go, hmm, actually, this relationship isn't that great. So ultimately, instinctually, yes, there's a reciprocity there. But I don't think consciously we sit there and give love because we're expecting anything in return. I think we give love because it's something that is an enjoyable thing to do. And it builds a relationship which ultimately, hopefully, yes, gives you love back. So I don't think we consciously do that. I don't think we're that Machiavellian in a way about it. I think that we are much more unconsciously doing that. And I think we, lots people love for many different reasons, but I don't think it's quite as bare as that, no. When we come to defining love, is a large part of that based around society? And in your research, how did you see that different societies approached love differently? What surprised you the most compared to our sort of Western perception of love and maybe other places' perceptions of love? Yes, certainly. If you if you ask people to define love, the first most striking thing, and in fact, the reason why I wrote the book is how many different answers you get. Yeah. <laughs> because love is, whilst we can objectively study bits of love, and I can tell you certain things that feed into the definition of love, there's this massive subjective element, which is we've all experienced it or experienced the lack of it. And therefore, we all have a definition. Uh, so there's this big subjective bit. Um, and certainly what culture, what background you were brought up in really does quite strongly influence 
how you define love. So yes, in the West, we have a bit of an obsession with romantic love. And quite often when I ask people to define love in the Western uh, cultures, what they actually define for me is romantic love, which is interesting. We seem to place it on a pedestal. We have all these stories about, you know, which are fed to us by the media, by romantic poets, by Disney, all those sorts of people about, you know, romantic love being about finding the one and finding your soulmate and battling everything to be with the person you love. And it's all very dramatic. And that's what love is. Whereas if we look in other cultures, certainly you get very different definitions of love. So a most wonderful study was carried out looking at three quite contrasting cultures. So Russians, Brazilians, and Central Africans, and they were each asked to define love. So if we look at the Brazilian definition of love, it's very much related to the Catholic faith. And so love is about sacrifice. Love is about giving towards others and not necessarily expecting much in return. And it's also very much grounded in the family. So they don't actually define, when we say define love, they don't necessarily define romantic love, they, the broader picture of what love is in the familial context. If you ask the Russians what love is, that is much, it's much more, we would read it very much as being quite a dark, quite a, quite a negative view of what, you know, love is hard and love is to do with loss and love is to do with difficulty. So actually being in love is quite a difficult thing to be. So it's a much more negative definition. And then if we look at the Central Africans, they link it very much to spirituality and that love is about if you love someone, you are achieving a higher plane, a higher religious plane. You're aligning yourself with God. So very, very different definitions of love. And that's why I think it's really important, those of us who study love, that we don't just look at the biological sides, which is obviously important, but we also look at that cultural sociological side because that will feed into how somebody experiences their love and what they feel like when they're in love. What do we know about love's connection to health and happiness? Love is, has, and this is something we've really discovered in the last, I suppose, 10, 15 years is the absolute importance of what we call social capital. So it's not just love, actually. It's about having people in your life who you cooperate with and who you build relationships with. And obviously you're not going to love them all. But um, what we found is there's a really strong link between the health of those relationships, the strength of them, how involved you are with them, what you get out of them and your general physical and mental health. One of the first studies was done in about 2010 and it found that the influence of the nature of your relationships on your likelihood of good health is as strong as, for example, quitting smoking, which is about 50 percent. If you quit smoking, you are 50 percent more likely to have good health and to live. And much more than, for example, losing weight if you're obese at about 30%. So it's a really important factor in your health and in your longevity. And there's various reasons why that might be. It might be that the neurochemistry itself, particularly in relation to mental health, is obviously a nice flood of positive neurochemistry, which is very good at tackling cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So it might be from a mental health point of view that that's good generally. It could be that by being in a a nice, embedded in a lovely supportive social network, you get lots of practical support, financial support, emotional support. You know, and particularly, for example, if you're ill, people will look after you. And it could be that actually recent studies have shown that particularly beta endorphin seems to have a role in your immune system. So it could be that when you release beta endorphin, when you interact with people you love, you're bolstering your immune system. So it's much better at fighting any infection you might get. This is an incredibly strong relationship. And it's it's a relationship that we're constantly trying to get those in the medical and social care setting to listen to. Because in many cases, giving someone a social prescription, you know, go and join a gardening club or go and join a choir or a football team or whatever it might be, can be as good as giving them some form of medication. 
one thing I I find strange about love is it seems to me as humans we're usually quite good at when we do something and it doesn't work out and it hurts us we don't do it again. But love is something where you know most people will have experienced heartbreak at some point and then for lots of people they instantly rush headfirst going into another relationship or trying to seek that again. Is that because love is genuinely addictive because of those you know those benefits that you mentioned previously yes to a certain extent it is and particularly beta endorphin beta endorphin is an opiate Mm. so it's morphine it's heroin and it is addictive and when you split up with somebody particularly if you're dumped and you therefore have no notice of the fact this is going to happen um you can go into quite severe neurochemical withdrawal and therefore what you're doing is you're seeking a re-hit of that neurochemistry basically by going back into that relationship Other people find, and this is partly to do with their psychology, maybe a little bit with their genetics, some people find that rush of love particularly potent. And therefore, there are some people who are much more likely to do that, to rush into that heady period of first love more quickly than others, because they have a tendency to do that. And the final reason we do it is at the very start of a relationship, the bit of your brain which actually is terribly good at judging what's good for you particularly in terms of whether somebody's a nice person, for example, shuts down. So we know that actually in the first few weeks, even possibly months of a relationship, love is technically blind because the bit of your brain which spots a badden, basically, it's called theory of mind and it's very good at spotting cheats and liars and all that, deactivates. And therefore, you are not very good at judging what's good for you at that point. So while your friends can maybe see somebody and think, oh my God, you know, who is this person? Yeah. Why are they <laughs> you, you literally can't see it. And it will take you some time to come to the point where you get where you realize and you acknowledge what's going on. So, you know, there are various reasons why they do that. But it's a mix of that addiction. It's a mix of personality and genetic underpinnings. And it's a mix of the fact that your brain shuts down and you're not terribly good at judging things. Gosh, I'm definitely going to have to be a lot more forgiving the next time a friend introduces me to an absolutely <laughs> awful person yes, that they're dating. <laughs> Is the experience of romantic love neurologically the same as other kinds or do different things happen? So, for example, I love dogs. Is that slightly different in my brain compared to when I love a human or is it similar but things happen in different amounts? Okay, when you love a dog, it's the same as loving a human in Mm. terms of the pattern and, and what it most closely aligns to actually is what we see in parental love. So there is a basic fingerprint of love, which involves uh, mainly the what we call the dopaminergic circuits in the brain. And then there will be bits lighting up, which are specific to the type of love you're talking about. So if we're talking romantic love, then the hypothalamus, which is linked to sexual hormones, to your sex hormones, is lit up. If we look at parental love, then it's an area known as the PAG, which is the periaqueductal grey matter, that that's very much involved in parenting, for example. So we'll see those different things. And yes, when you look at the brain of a dog lover, that's the bit that relies up. It's, it's the closest parental love. The thing is, yes, you, you see different levels of intensity. So obviously, we don't all love everybody with the same intensity as each other. And therefore, that will be reflected in the intensity of activity that you see in the brain. What about attachment styles? How do they differ and impact on the way we love? They impact quite strongly. They're one of the major reasons why we all differ when we're in love and how we behave and how we feel. So if we look at romantic love, romantic love has four attachment styles. The first is secure. 
So a secure person is very confident in the relationship, doesn't have any anxiety about the person leaving them, is very comfortable with emotional and and, uh, physical intimacy, for example. And so that's the secure sign. The other three are insecure attachment styles. And as with secure attachment styles, the way we place people in which one they're in is we measure their reactions, their experience in relationships on two dimensions. One is how anxious are you about being abandoned? And the other is how comfortable are you with proximity, intimacy? And so, yes, if you're secure, you're very comfortable with proximity and you're very low in anxiety. If we go towards people who are, for example, very worried about anxiety and very like to maintain close proximity, those are preoccupied people. Um, and they, in sort of probably unacceptable parlance, they're known as clingy, basically. They're very, very worried about the person leaving them. And therefore, the way they deal with it is by maintaining very close proximity to the person. Then we have the two dismissing styles or the two avoidance styles. And that's fearful avoidance. Now, fearful avoidant people have very high anxiety of being left. But the way they deal with it is by not maintaining proximity, which means actually they avoid relationships. They don't tend to want to be in a relationship because they're worried they're going to get hurt. And then finally, we have dismissing avoidant people. And these are really interesting people. These are people who don't really require a relationship in their life for whatever reason. It might be because they're scared. Or it's because they're just a classic island and they don't need that. And they tend to be very low in anxiety because they're not worried about being abandoned because they don't really want to be there. And they're very low in proximity because they might struggle with physical and emotional intimacy and they don't like maintaining proximity to people. And all of those things then will influence how you behave and how you feel. So do you feel very anxious in relationships a lot of the time? Or do you, are you the sort of person who after the third date, even though it's going well, legs it because you're feeling really uncomfortable, for example? You're making me sort of plod out a graph in my brain and try <laughs> to think, where am I? It is where funny I? when I show this grid to people <laughs> when I give public talks, it all goes quiet. You can see them all trying to place themselves. <laughs> yeah. On a slight tangent, there's an anecdote in your book, which I thought was very interesting. Can you tell me about the study of Carmelite nuns and Mm. how they reacted when they said they were in the presence of God. Oh, wow. Well, this is amazing. The whole study of religious love, I find fascinating because what's amazing about it is, as far as we know, other creatures cannot have relationships with with things that don't manifest in physical form. And that's what religious love is. You're, You're having a love, in a way, within your head. So there's been quite a few studies now looking at people who are very devout followers of somebody. And this cracking study, uh, which was carried out, was, was yes, putting Carmelite nuns into a scanner and asking them to get into a mystic union with God, which is kind of the closest conjoining you can have with God, where you talk to God and you commune with God. And they really wanted to see what happened in the brain. Because obviously, particularly sort of devout Christians talk of the love of God. They talk of a relationship with God. God might be their father, their brother, even their, you know, their, their husband, if you're a nun. And therefore, they talk a lot about it. And if you ask them to describe their relationship with God, it sounds like an attachment. and It sounds like love. So let's see what happens in the brain. And when you put them in the scanner, you do see the fingerprint of love. You see that far up. And what's really interesting also, which is fascinating, is you see the prefrontal cortex go off as well, because most of the fingerprint of love is is quite deep in the brain because it's very ancient. Whereas the conscious bit at the front, the prefrontal cortex, is what um, lights up when we interact with fellow humans. And that lights up. Now, if I was to get you to interact with a robot, a humanoid robot, that doesn't light up. So what that shows you is that when they're interacting with God, they are interacting with a fellow human. 
And it's the same as interacting with somebody, you know, sitting next to you. So it's really, really fascinating. And I find it the most wonderful representation of the power of a human brain, that you can have this relationship, very, very intense, loving relationship with this non-physical being. Love at the start is always very exciting. And like you say, you mentioned there's those sort of people who will do free dates and then just kind of leg it because, you know, it's really fun at first and then it becomes a routine, which people are, you know, no one's as interested in routine as they are for new, exciting things. Is love really largely just being reliable? Is that a major <laughs> point of it? <laughs> I don't think so, no. I don't know whether it's about being reliable. Certainly if you're in love, you do have to be committed. You have to be willing to work and put the work in because it's not easy being in love. You have to be able to be trusted. So, yes, for a long-term relationship, those things are, I suppose, important. And I suppose they are reliable. They are about being reliable. But I think if you were just reliable, life would get pretty dull pretty quickly. We know that the best relationships are ones where you maintain a sense of novelty in some way. And that might be by doing new things or or whatever it might be. Um, But, yes, there has to be a certain unexpected element, I think, to most relationships to keep us on our toes. I think if we were completely reliable, you know, we're an inquisitive being, I think we'd probably get bored quite quickly. I'm going to end on a a bit of a tough question. I've asked you a few big ones, but I'm going to go for one of my biggest, I think, (laughs) now. So in one of my favourite books, Still Life with Woodpecker, Tom Robbins wrote, there is only one serious question, and that is, who knows how to make love stay? Do you think there's an answer to that? Ultimately, no, you can't make love stay. It's not controllable in that way. But there are certainly things that we know from studying many relationships of ways to try and keep it as long as you possibly can, I suppose. You know, so we know the behaviours that maintain relationships better. And those tend to be the behaviours that induce this neurochemical release. We know that certain things like being emotionally vulnerable. If you're emotionally vulnerable, you're much more likely to remain close to your partner because you're sharing those vulnerabilities with each other. We know, for example, yes, doing novel things together is more likely to. to. So there are things we know that we could tell you. We could tell you from the very beginning that there are certain attachment styles that are more likely to last long-term than others in terms of coupling up. So, you know, be aware of your attachment style, be aware of the attachment style of the person you're in a relationship with, because some of those are going to be more compatible than others. So there are things that we know. One of the things I think that makes love wonderful, but also makes us really scared of it and try to control it is its uncontrollability. It's the fact that you can't control it. You can't control how somebody else's love feels. So ultimately you have no control now. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today. That was a really interesting conversation. That was great. Thanks for having me. In the words of Henry Miller, the only thing we never get enough of is love. And the only thing we never give enough of is love. So make sure you dish them out today. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday. We'll start your week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back us on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. This is Jacob Jarvis signing out of the Bunker. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofrinievich, and me, Cupid, the god of love. Now hold still, this might hurt a bit. Our assistant producer is Kasia Tomaszewicz. Our marketing manager 
is Gina Wretched. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>